Um, it is a joy to be together, and we're grateful that you responded to God's call to be here today because we cannot worship God as fully as we would like, um, just as individuals. We need one another. And so um, thank you. Thank you for being here. We are continuing today in our new sermon series in the book of Colossians, and we're asking ourselves, um, ta talking about the light, asking ourselves about the light. What is the light? How are we following the light? How well are we following this light? So um, I'm going to say what I said last week about the book of Colossians. Colossians is a letter that was written to people in Colossae. It is very dense. The Greeks, because remember it was written in, written in Greek, it was not written in English. The Greeks do not like punctuation. They just have long, long, long sentences, and we had to guess how to break those up. But that means that it can be hard to follow along. So I'm going to ask you, um, even if you're someone who just likes the, to listen to the scripture, I'm going to ask you to just keep our scripture that's printed on the back of your fridge flyer. Uh, I would like for you to just keep that in front of you. Um, because as we refer back to it, it might be helpful just to see where we're at in this. Um, I also want to just note that our passage of scripture for today, it's short, but it's dense. And it was believed that the second half of our scripture passage was a well-known hymn in the ancient times, a poem of ancient times. So um, maybe the language sounds familiar, maybe the language doesn't. But it's just important to note that this was something that was pretty well known throughout that first ancient church. Let's turn to our scripture, Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. Paul continues in his letter by saying this. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him, the firstborn, in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, bless you, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Can you imagine what that'd be like if it had no punctuation? Let's pray, because we're going to need help as we come in trying to find God's word for us today. God, as we come to your scripture, we ask that you might invade this space and fill it up completely. From the carpets through that drop ceiling, up to the roof, from one wall to the other side, from the back to the front. And as you invade and fill this space, Lord, we pray that we might not stand against you, 
but that we might open our hearts up to you, that we might allow you to stand closer to us than our skin, that we might feel your breath on our face. Lord, if we are in your truth, keep us there. And if we are not, God, put us there. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So as I said, friends, last week, we started to dive into the book of Colossians, sort of using it as our guide, starting off this new year, considering what light we are following in our lives, as well as being honest with ourselves in how well we are following that light. And we started off by talking about how the book of Colossians is like the original Matrix, the movie, because Colossians starts right off the bat by telling us that we know what we know to be reliable isn't really reliable. Colossians starts right off the bat by saying that we cannot use the basic knowledge of the world that we know to interpret the kingdom of God that is not part of this world that we know. If we want to understand the light, then we cannot use a logic that fumbles in the twilight. If we want to understand the eternal light of the kingdom, then we cannot use the finite lenses that we have. Instead, we need a new lens, a new cipher, to help us to discern and determine what it is we see God doing, what we hear God doing, what we experience God doing. And so Colossians says, because we need that new lens, that new lens is no more than Jesus Christ himself. That's what we talked about last week. Last week, we also talked about how the book of Colossians is trying to move us from one point to the other, from point A to point B, saying that we have all started our journey as Christians in faith and hope and love. And Colossians is setting to move us, to equip us with another trio, to equip us with knowledge and wisdom and understanding. So Colossians is trying to move us from merely hearing the gospel to walking and living the gospel in ways that correspond with God's values. So as we go through, that's just our recap. As we go through our scripture for today, we're going to be gathering up three points. And so I'm going to ask, if you're of like the note-taking kind, then you would help me out if you would bust out a pen and paper because there is nothing worse than a three-point sermon where you don't know what those three points are. And inevitably, as a preacher, you're like, point number one, blah, 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 and number three. And then people are going, what? Where was number two? Did I miss it? So uh, three points Stick with me. If I miss one, then like wave your hands or something. If I don't see you, it's because the lights are really bright. Don't throw anything at me, please. Now, we sort of breezed past this the first time around last week, but Colossians as a book is more or less half theology and half practicality. It's half thesis and it's half praxis. It's half right thinking and it's half right doing. And so our short passage of scripture for today is in the words of Sally Brown, one of my professors at Princeton, one of the most comprehensive Christological visions that can be found in the New Testament. 
which is to say that this passage that we have as our scripture for today is an excellent summation about who Jesus is in these heady theological terms. Jesus is the visible expression of an invisible God. Jesus is the firstborn of creation and the firstborn of the dead. We're going to come back to that in just a little bit. Before we get to this right thinking, there is something first. There is something more important. Before we start to figure out how to think correctly about God and about Jesus, and before we have to figure out how to act rightly in response to this God, before we do anything at all, my friends, it's important to note one thing. Before we do anything, before we change anything, before we learn anything, we first belong. First, we belong to God. And that is our first point today. Maybe you've heard this before, and maybe you're sitting here thinking, yeah, 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 I know. But I really want to emphasize that we cannot just glance over this. And we can't glance over it because it is really important that we learn how to think correctly about God. And it is really important that we learn how to respond rightly to God by the way we live our lives. But, but, if we try to do either of those things outside of the truth of knowing that first we belong without doing anything, then we might make the mistake of believing that we only belong to God if we first think correctly, or we only belong to God if we first act rightly. And if we were to do that, my friends, that would be an absolute disaster. Our belonging to God does not hinge on whether we think all the right things or whether we do all of the right things, even though we need to move towards those. Our belonging to God doesn't hinge on us at all. Our belonging to God hinges only on Jesus. Point number one is that we first belong to God. And nothing we think or we don't think, nothing we do or we don't do, can change that. First, we belong to God. And as a result, we have this responsibility for learning to think and responding well to who God is. And so now that we have point number one under our um, wings, yes, we all agree on point number one, nod or shake. Nod or shake, okay. Uh, so now I want us to go back to scripture, this little gem of theology about who God is through the person of Jesus. Friends, as is true whenever we read scripture, wherever we are in the scriptures, it's really important for us to consider what we are reading through the context of the time that it was written. And it's particularly important to remember to read the Bible in context when we come to passages like our passage for today. These passages that are a little dry, they're a little wordy, they sound a little rote, sound a little boring. It's important to read these passages in context because these passages got to sound boring for a reason. They sound boring because they have been repeated over and over and over again in hundreds of different ways 
as a way to preserve that valuable core of truth that is in there. It's important for us to remember, my friends, that this passage did not start out as boring when it was first written down. There's a commentator named Brian Walsh. He says this. He says, always read, read scripture in the shadow of the empire. Always read scripture in the shadow of the empire, which he means the Roman empire. He goes on saying this. This is nowhere more crucial than in today's passage. Having left us gasping for breath from the depth and the breadth of his opening run-on sentence, Paul now changes genre and offers a poem of draw-dropping audacity and sedition. Yes, sedition. If you read this magnificent poem about Jesus, if you read this magnificent poem about Jesus in the context of the Roman imperial imagination, you will see that our scripture engenders seditious imagination. In a world in which images of Caesar were ubiquitous, Paul writes of Jesus as the image of the invisible God. Now in an imperial mythology in which the emperor is nothing less than a son of God by virtue of his lineage, Paul says that Christ is the firstborn over all of creation in a culture in which the emperor's preeminence is embedded, legitimated, and defended by socioeconomic, political, and military structures. Paul, to the Colossians, has the audacity to proclaim not only that all things in heaven and earth were created through Jesus and for Jesus, but specifically that all thrones and dominions and rulers and powers are subject to Jesus' rule. In this passage, the demythologizing of the empire couldn't be clearer. If Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation, then Caesar isn't. He continues on, he says, and all of this happens on a cross. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was always proclaimed as the great accomplishment of the empire. But we know how Rome maintained that peace. On crosses littering the landscape, that peace was established and secured through the eradication of all opposition. So Paul turns the imperial cruelty on its head and says that Jesus achieves his lordship, demonstrates that he is the one in whom the very fullness of God dwells, and reconciles himself to all things by making peace through the blood on his cross. Friends, in Jesus, here is a sovereignty, here is a kingdom, also born of blood, but instead of being the blood of its victims, it is the blood of its Lord. What Walsh is saying here is our second point for today. Jesus is not boring. Jesus is not rote. We cannot know everything about an infinite part of God's spirit. 
Jesus is not boring. Jesus is disruptive and was always intended to be. From the perspective of the world that we live in, from the perspective of the systems that direct us and keep us in order, the act of Jesus breaking into the world is a subversive, seditious act. And God always intended it to be a subversive, seditious act. Hey, do you know that Christianity wasn't always Christendom? Like the idea that Christianity is something that helps to shape the governments of the world and the systems of the world. That wasn't always a thing. You know that? In uh, the, the year 313, Constantine, the, now the story goes that Constantine, in a battle of going against Rome and trying to take over Rome, was on a bridge, and he was really, really struggling. He, he didn't think he was going to win this battle, and so on this bridge, he drops to his knees, and he prays to something he does not know and says, you know what? Praise to the Christian, Christian God that he had heard about. Says, if you help me win this battle, I will become a Christian. I will make Christianity my thing. And what happened? He won. And so that's where Christendom started. In 313, I wrote it down, the act of Edict of Milan. That was when Constantine married Christianity with the government. And maybe, my friends, that wasn't such a great thing because it was never intended to be. Jesus, out of God's subversive spirit, was always meant to be disruptive, was always meant to be a seditious act to the way that this world works. Miriam Kamal says, Christians don't always have the most celebratory reputation it's an understatement, right? She says, but Paul can't seem to find superlative enough language to celebrate the world of Christ on the cross and putting all things right. Paul can't be any more enthusiastic than he is being in Colossians. And she says, that is what we should celebrate, that Christ is putting all things right through disrupting the ways of this world. Because of the cross, we can live in great confidence and in great joy that all things that are so wrong will be made right and that Christ has already begun putting all things right. By inviting us into God's kingdom, we are partners. We are co-inheritors of all things made right. So and we should work for the justice and the righting of wrongs. We should work for the peace and reconciliation. But we do these things because we first know that all of this will be done in Christ. Friends, if we are feeling bored with Jesus, if we feel like we know all that there is to know about who God is and what Jesus was doing and what Jesus was up to, then let that serve as a signal to us that our right thinking is still developing. If we are 100% in cahoots with the status quo of the day-to-day -day lives that we live, may that serve us as a sign that our right thinking is still developing. Okay, so point number one. Who remembers? What was it? 
You belong. Thank you. Point number two. Jesus is seditious. Thank you. I could have just said that, but instead I was, see? I, yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh, Todd Edwards, we love you. So point number three. Resurrection is not about resuscitation. Resurrection is about new creation. Resurrection is not about resuscitation. Resurrection is about new creation. You remember at the very start of our sermon today when we talked about how Jesus is the firstborn through whom everything in creation was made and that Jesus is also the firstborn of the dead? Remember when I said that at the beginning and then I said we don't need to talk about it until later? Here we are, it's later. We're going to talk about it because it turns out that being the firstborn of all creation and being the firstborn of the dead are one and the same thing. Carl Jacobson says it this way. He says, in Colossians, firstborn is employed in two different ways. First, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Second, Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. And in this sense, firstborn of the dead is just a simple statement of the resurrection both of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and of the promised resurrection of every believer in Christ. Individually, Jacobson says, individually, each statement is striking and significant. But together, the two phrases work to form something much more. Jesus is both firstborn of the creation and of the dead. So What this does is connect the act of creation with the promise of resurrection in reverse. For Colossians, resurrection is essentially an act of creation. Not resuscitation, but recreation. Not just new life, but new creation. I'm emphasizing this, my friends, because sometimes when we talk about resurrection or when we talk about something being made new, when we talk about how there is life eternal, sometimes that can sound really, really exhausting. For those of us that have had a hard life, which we all have had hardness in our lives, for those of us that are struggling, for those of us that feel weary, for those of us that are wounded, or for those of us who are gasping for some reprieve, The idea that somehow when we are able to rest in peace that we will be raised up again to continue on in that journey, that doesn't always sound so hopeful. But resurrection is not resuscitation. Resurrection is new creation. And what that means is that when we submit our lives into that sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we are made new completely. Second Corinthians says, the old is gone, the new has come. And it says it with an exclamation point. The old is gone, the new has come. The things that continue to plague us, that weigh us down, they might leave their scars on us, but we will be made new. The things, the hopes, the dreams, the promises that have failed, that have petered out and died, they will be made new. Not resuscitated, new. 
Friends, the three things that I want us to remember today is that number one, you and me first before anything else, we belong. And we belong to a God who always intended to disrupt the status quo of what is acceptable in this world, to turn it on its head. And the disruption of that status quo comes through God's perpetual habit of creating and recreating. With nothing being big enough, nothing being strong enough, nothing being dire enough to get in God's way of creating and recreating, not even death. That is what we belong to. That is what Colossians is pressing us toward. That is the light that we follow. Please join me as we pray. God, sometimes it is easier to just go with the flow, to go along with what we know, to repeat what has been done, to not stand in the middle of the stream with the water pressing against us and pushing us backwards. Sometimes, God, that is so much easier, and yet that is not who you are. We pray, Lord, that as we meditate on your scripture, as we do our best to align our feet with the steps of your spirit, we pray, God, that we will question ourselves when we agree with all as it is. We pray, Lord, that we will look forever toward the light and that we will not give up following it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, in commemoration of... Uh